once the camera was rolling, she cut open the box. Inside the box was a red plastic biohazard bag. And she said, it's all babies. It's just babies. You know, our hearts are racing. We remove enough where there's another bag visible near the bottom. And when Lauren pulled out the bag, it was like a white plastic garbage bag, but you could kind of see through it and you could see that there were five much larger containers in that bag. And one of those containers was significantly larger than the other four. And our hearts just dropped. And we knew, you know, it's like bigger containers means bigger babies. Hello and welcome to the Alan Film Scoop. I'm Anne McElhenney. And I'm Phil McLear from a very wet and windy Los not, Angeles. Not so windy, but very, very, very wet and torrential rain, which we've had. Torrential. Apparently, there's apparently there's an awful drought here. I, I remember, I'm old enough to remember when they said not that long ago that we'd never see rain again in California. We've, lived, we've actually been in L.A. long enough to live through two, two record droughts, two droughts where there would never be rain again. We're, we first we're not came, here that long. We, we first time it was five years, there wasn't much rain. And then it rained for a year and then it rained for a bit of the next year and we're back to normal. And then it was a drought and oh, it was record low levels and all these bodies were turning up in lakes. And now I'll tell you, you wouldn't find many bodies in the lakes now. No, a lot of, lot of, lot of rain out there actually. The cats, the cats. Are, are, are they don't know whether they're coming or going? Yes, mostly, mostly, mostly coming. coming. Yes, yes, mostly coming home. Yes, they don't like it. Now. They don't, don't like, like it. Right. Yes. So we have a very packed um, program today. Yes. Actually, um, what what are we talking about today? Well, we're going to talk about uh, a country where the the government is trying to destroy the political opposition, and that we're not talking about Russia. We're talking about America. Boom, boom. You know, um, and t- talking of sham justice, we're going to. We're going to look at Michael Mann's latest uh, attempt to justify uh, shutting down debate. And, you know, Michael Mann may think the science is settled, but so did California. We're going to look at two uh, green initiatives in California that had basically the completely opposite uh, result. And then we have a really, truly shocking story out of Washington, D.C. You know how often we have said that, you know, that there's very, very likely to be another Gosnell out there. Uh, given the way things are regulated and given the popularity of abortion in so many places in America. Um, and we are going to bring you a story uh, very similar to the Gosnell story. Um, we'll be talking to a pro-life activist who has uncovered an extraordinary story. It's very important, so keep listening for that. So it's hard to know really where to start with the Trump madness. I'm sure you know Judge Arthur Engoron, crazy name for a crazy judge, uh, has fined the former president three hundred and fifty-five million and a hundred bazillion for this and ten Mr. million Mr. for that. Mr. Billion for for fraud, a fraud where no one lost any money. Well, actually, his argument, to be fair to the judge, let's give him his argument. His argument is that the banks could have got a better rate of interest if. He's claiming Trump misled the banks about the value of the buildings, so they had this collateral here, mm-hmm. which was a lot of collateral, and when actually in reality it wasn't that much. So they would they would look and say, "Oh, that's risky. We'll charge you a slightly higher rate of interest." So they could have made more interest on the loans, except for the fact that the banks who were who were questioned are delighted with themselves, yes. delighted with him, and really liked um, do, doing business with him. They called him a whale. I think it's called, yes, he's called a whale investor. Um, they really, really liked to deal with him. And I think what was really curious for me as well was, and I kind of surprised actually, I, which is not, you know, I I don't even know why I was surprised, but uh, Trump always paid back his loans on time and in full. 
Yes. You know, which I would imagine is not actually something that happens with a lot of business I people. I think in 1993, he, he got into trouble when there was the real estate downturn, but everyone got in trouble then. And I think he had to renegotiate the loans and all that. But apart from that, he, he always paid back. And he, di he didn't declare bankruptcy. You know, this is the thing. Trump was back. He didn't declare bankruptcy. And interesting as well, I think, you know, it's it's been, I, I was very heartened by the fact that Mr. Wonderful, um, Kevin O'Leary, Kevin O'Leary from the Shark Tank TV program, who's, a, you know, a big entrepreneur um, and, you know, wouldn't, I wouldn't think would be a friend of Trump's by any by any means, has basically said that this this decision from this court, this weaponization of the of the courts, I mean, is he said it's sending a chilling effect through the retail, uh, through anybody who's involved in in uh, real estate in the real estate world. Very chilling effect. Um, if you want to actually, fully, I, I hadn't really thought. If you want to know how mad this is, go on Zillow now. But actually, it'd be even better go on Zillow two years ago. Zillow do a estimate. Oh, yes. Right? Oh, yeah. Which is for the value of your house, right? And it's it, a couple of years ago, it was absolutely mad. In fact, Zillow almost went bankrupt because Zillow said, why are we doing, why are we acting as the middleman? Why don't we buy houses and rent them out and flip them and, and resell them? And they used their Zillow Zestimate. Uh, estimates and, of course, hugely overpaid for the houses and lost 600 million in the process. So Zillow, with all their algorithms and actual data, you know, for the houses, they couldn't get it right. You know, it's it's an, an exact science. But also, I mean, also the idea, I mean, I, I, many many of you know this. I mean, it's just extraordinary. So Donald Trump was, you know, was according to the according to the court has been convicted basically of overinflating yes. the value of his properties. However, whatever whatever value he put on the property, that then was the, the banks were asked to obviously to, to check that mm -hmm. out and see if they would accept those numbers. The banks accepted those numbers. Yes. The, the banks didn't have to accept those numbers. No. So the banks went, yep, yeah, that looks about right. That yeah. looks about right to me. And it's not like, this, you know, these are these are banks. These are tough environments where this is what they do every day. It's like they're this is what their business is, is deciding whether or not to take on a loan or whether or not to give somebody a loan. So this is their actual business. So they signed off on these estimates of the value of the property. Also, also, the estimates are kind of like a red herring. I mean, if you're dealing with Donald Trump in a rising real estate market, you know, you know, you're going to get you're going to get paid back. And, you know, you're, you know, the, the actual, you know, and, and by the way, it's not like Trump says it's 100 million and borrows 100 million. No, they only you only get to borrow half the value. So you put up your building with 100 million yep. and he, he borrows 50 million against it. And if he doesn't buy pay back the 50 million, they seize the building. Oh yeah, nice one. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, they give him whatever is left after they take their fees and that. So it's it's whenever you hear that someone has been charged with a rarely used law. Yes, yes. Then you know it's a democrat uh, yeah. attempt to So there's no, you know, opponents. what's like the important takeouts is there, there's no victims here. No, no, no one got hurt. Donald no one's Trump. injured, except for Donald Trump. Obviously, no one gets hurt. No one was injured. The banks are all delighted with him. Um, you know, he didn't. It's unbelievable, and it's like, but, but this is the weaponization of the, of the so, judicial system. So Fanny the, Willis, talk about. The oh my God, I funny I, name for a lady, but anyway. Well, listening to her speaking. I had to question whether or not she even has a law degree. Yes. I mean, I, I found it extraordinary the way that she spoke um, and her whole demeanour in the courtroom. But she was completely ungrammatical. Yeah. Uh, she, I have went and saying things like that. And it's like, that's, you know, she, she, she seemed incapable of speaking proper English. And I'm sorry if that sounds snobby or racist or whatever you want, label you want to put on it. 
But, you know, there's ways of communicating and, you know, and and I'm not I'm not she's not recording a pop song. She's not in a movie. You use different language then. This is a court of law. And, you you know, by the way, if you get your tenses wrong in a court of law, it can be very serious consequences down the line. So, we, you know, people have to communicate uh, correctly and exactly. And I know that. that people now say that's probably racist to, you know, isn't that a whole coming, arriving to work on time is racist and oh God. getting yeah, good yeah. results is <laughs> that's racist. That's right. And so, being able to do ar- arithmetic is racist. You know? I want to say one thing. She wasn't wearing the dress backwards. Yeah, I didn't think she was wearing the dress backwards. There was a zip at the front. You know, yes, zip. film. Yes. Uh, you fell into the belief that, you know, whatever people were saying on Twitter was actually correct about the dress. Anyway, you the whole thing. You tell me what people say on Twitter is not true? Yeah. Shocking, isn't it? Yes. Um, anyway, a lot of uh, just uh, I, I, everything happening in the courts recently is very disturbing. Including, obviously, including obviously, we just got obviously got back from Washington D.C. where the ridiculous decision was made in Michael Mann's favour. Yes. extraordinary given what uh, we what we heard day after day. And by the way, we were the only people there. No one else covered the case day by day the way the, the yes. way that we did. And I think there's a very good reason for that because the Washington Post, etc., did not want to report on what was happening mm-hmm. in the court. They didn't want to report on the extraordinary behaviour of Michael Mann, the pretend, the the pretend. And Nobel Prize winner, um, and and just the way that and the way that he had behaved. So all in in all of these courts, what's going on is 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 very worrying because yes. when people lose faith in the justice system, it's it's a really bad thing. Yes. And when you see the 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 courts being used so, so weaponized against against a political opponent in the shape of of Donald Trump. It, it starts to look a lot like Russia and obviously everyone's very conscious of what happened yeah. recently in Russia. And I thought actually Molly Hemingway did it. She put it up on Twitter and I thought it was very good. She showed the front page of the Wall Street Journal the other day, which had, you know, the finding against mm. Trump. And underneath that was the, the death of Navalny, the, the murder of Navalny by, by Putin, you know, where he had died in prison. Yeah. And I mean, the similarity between the two stories was, you know, was, was fairly yes. obvious. And, and can we just say that... Um just because Russia has nice subways. Oh my God! And I'm, I'm, not, talk, I'm not talking about restaurant shops. Tucker, Tucker, darling, sweetheart. Very embarrassing, Tucker, to watch you doing that. It's like, are you twelve? You know, have you ever read anything? Have you ever read a book? Do you know that this is, you know, this is such a cliche? It's like you. He basically turned into Michael Moore, Michael Moore, who went to off Cuba. to Cuba and oh, said, "Oh, isn't the health system fabulous well, here?" When I was at DC in that wonderful hotel, not, um, I was sitting at the bar having something to eat or whatever, because I don't drink alcohol. Um, and, uh, of course, not drinking alcohol is great, because you can listen. So the, the waitress staff were having a conversation. I didn't tell you about this. No, no, no. no, no, yeah. no, no. So and the next thing I heard was, it was wonderful. Nobody misgendered my husband once. Right? I'm going, oh, okay, my God. Okay. Somebody said that? Yes, right. And I was, okay, well, that's wonderful. And so then, and, like, the people are so nice. And they were so nice. And, and you know, like... Everybody owns everything. Oh dear! Right, and I'm going and like Cuba, Cuba. Oh God! And you know she'd be taken. And, and, and how long? And then the girl says, "How long are you there for? Five days." She knew, but she she had fairly well assessed the whole country. Fabulous Cuba, yeah, you know. It's fabulous. amazing. It's amazing. People try to leave it at all. Why That's would right. anyone? You'd on, want to be on on tires. They, yeah, they, yeah they, swimming with sharks. By the way, to leave it bizarre. Yes, bizarre. Really. Bizarre. Obviously, those people aren't right in the head at yes, all. You know. Yes. But that, that's so. So that, I'm not saying you know. 
that was kind of like Tucker, you know. Wow, look at this, and they've got shops, and they. Oh no, and, the, and I mean, I, I thought when I saw the when I, I first of all we'd seen the thing with the with him in the in the subway, thinking how fabulous it was they have chandeliers yeah. in the subway, isn't it great? Sure, don't worry about the fact that they've got a penal colony within mm. the Arctic Circle. Forget about that. Yes. Isn't the subway just gorgeous? And then he goes on. Then the other one was, and I saw the video, and I thought someone has AI'd it. I actually thought yeah. somebody because it was it was Tucker in a in a supermarket with all these groceries, and I thought. His naivety was, I, I mean, I kind of, sh- I'm, I'm very shocked by it. Yes. I would have thought he was more urbane Traveled. and more travelled um, and more sophisticated, but he's not. Yes. Or I don't even know what, I, I, I think he's definitely, and in the week that Navalny was murdered, 47 years old, um, one of Putin's biggest enemy was murdered basically by the system, by, by Putin. I, it made Tucker, I mean, Tucker really, and I don't think, and I, I I meant to search, I don't believe Tucker has said anything about that, except for, oh no, this awful statement he made, this extraordinary statement he said, all world leaders. No, that's, that's an old statement that was, that's been brought back, right? Oh, that's really? Not, it wasn't yes. in relation to that? So no. he hasn't said anything about Navalny? No, not really. But, but you know, I hope the, ed- I want the editor to, to obviously um, bleep this out, but all countries are cheap, right? You know. That you know, we we lived in Romania. Not by the way, not Romania wasn't that bad, but it was it was coming out of communism, yes. out of out of fifty years of destruction and 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 mayhem, and it was cheap. Um, yeah, and I think as somebody pointed out, actually, you know, I think the average salary, annual salary in Russia is fifteen thousand dollars a year. So you know, that's a different context for buying your groceries, yes. right? Than than yes. here. And and. and so, I mean, Hemingway went to Paris after after the first after the first world war, yeah, because it was devastated, right? And because the 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 franc was in the toilet, right? Mm-hmm. So, countries are cheap. Countries tend to have really weak currency, so therefore your dollar goes a long way. As you know, it's nice sometimes to go to these countries that are in decline or are really cheap. You can live like a king, and you can live in a nice airy apartment, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But it doesn't mean that that country is is a is an example. Yeah, don't try and speak. Anything. Don't try and speak out against the regime. But having said that, you know, and this is a nice segue film. Yes. You know, don't try and speak out against the regime. You know, because being in a country that's free is fabulous. Except for that, now America doesn't seem seem very free at all, as we have just yes. witnessed with Mark Stein and Rand Simberg, who you know, we're just basically writing their opinion pieces. And we did a podcast on that, Anne. Climate, we did do a podcast. Climate change on trial. Climate change on trial. Go there now and you, you'll listen to the podcast. We reenacted the courtroom drama every day. But Mark, uh, Michael Mann has has published a... An essay, essay in the New York Times. Times. And, I mean, I won't bore you with it. It's just... I can open the first... Let me read the first p- paragraph to you. The climate is warming. Polar ice is melting. Glaciers are receding. The chemistry of the oceans is becoming dangerously acidic. Sea levels are rising. All of this and more are consequences of the greenhouse gases we continue to emit in the atmosphere, where they trap and radiate heat that would otherwise escape into space. These are facts, not conjecture. You know, as in, don't you dare argue with me. Don't you debate it. Don't you question it. The scientists researching the fallout from the inconvenient fact established more than 100 years ago continue to face attacks that threaten their research, reputations and livelihoods. Except for you didn't prove that in a month in a courtroom, by the way, Michael Mann. Nothing was, you know, threatened their research, reputations and livelihoods. All that happened to your reputation in all of this, Michael Mann, was that we found out exactly what an awful person you are. And how odious you are in terms of the way that you behave uh, toward other academics. Your research, you know, your money has increased. 
your prizes have increased, your speeches have increased. Every part of your life has improved since these apparently defamatory articles were published. And yet he's, tr- you know, he's, he's writing this essay, yes, Oh, yes. woe is me. One of us, Michael Mann, is just such a scientist. 12 years ago, he found himself accused of research fraud for his work documenting the rapid rise of Earth's temperature since the early 20th century. Here's a, I mean, you know, obviously you guys all know this stuff, but Michael Mann, Michael Mann's theory and his hockey stick have been lambasted from all quarters, not just people like, not just people like Michael, not, not, not just people like Mark Stein. Um, and Rand Simberg, but scientists, including Nobel, actual Nobel Prize winning scientists. Well, I mean, look, Michael Mann, funny enough, if 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 the journalists had covered that court case, they would have had enough stories. I mean, I, I put out a Twitter thread. Oh, yes. Uh, over the weekend on Friday evening, which apparently the worst possible time, worst to, possible time to, 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 to publish a, to publish a Twitter thread. It's now being watched by three hundred and eighty-seven thousand people. That's the first and the next thread. Twitter and the thread has been thirty thousand. I think it's been watched by the at this stage. Red by well, what they call it watched, whatever. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, by by um views views. I think it's been watched viewed by almost half a million people. Right. But you know, we're talking about a man here. Michael Mann, who falsely told a, a NASA scientist and a journalist that Judith Curry, someone who just, a professor Judith Curry, who just disagreed with him, that she, you know, the, the worst sexual smear you could do, that when she was a student at Penn State, she slept with a married professor, breaking up his marriage and essentially sleeping her way to a PhD. His own lawyer called it the sleeping her way to the top email, uh, except none of it was true. Curry was a tenured professor when she she started but, going out and married a, a, a professor who was then on his way to divorce or divorced. And also, th- what's even more more odious is that man f- told a NASA scientist yes. and a journalist this this story that was completely made up, was completely untrue. So it wasn't like, as I said, often I said it, and I said it in the podcast. It wasn't like he said it to some bloke that he was hanging out in the pub with. Mm-hmm. He said this to NASA. He published this in a way to NASA, this discrediting of Judith yeah. Curry. And then, he, you know, in emails, he, he fantasized about destroying Mark Stein, who he described as an odious excuse for a human being. Another academic slash scientist who, who criticizes hockey stick graph. He called he, he called him a piece of human filth. Yeah. Uh, you know, this is this is the, the man we're supposed to feel sorry for. This is the man who 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 is entitled to a million dollars worth of damages. And we haven't finished. I'm going to uh, do a Twitter thread this week on how he was not cleared by the Penn State investigation. How how uh, how a corrupt president actually intervened yeah, yeah. and made sure that he was he was yeah that the decision actually of the Penn State was inquiry overturned. was overturned. Yeah, in, in secret. In secret. Yeah, uh, um, the the inquiry team were supposed to be operating, you know, divorced from anybody in the executive, and yet Spanier started writing emails <laughs> and and basically editing. The conclusions of the of the inquiry. Oh, we should say we're going off on the Mark Stein cruise. Oh, we should say that we're going off on the Mark Stein cruise. I think we were meant to be saying that. And we're hoping that next week's podcast, which might be just audio only, by the way, because of the fact that we'll be on the on the boat, um, 
will be an interview we're hoping with Mark, Mark Stein, Stein. With, the great, with the great Mark Stein. Yes. So talking of green failures, not Mark Stein. Ha ha, green, green failures. Yeah. I like that film. Yeah, go green, on. Michael Mann. Uh, so California, you don't know the story. California, I don't know the story. Right? They banned plastic bags. In fact, I think you remember, we were here when they banned plastic bags. Can I just say something funny about the banning of plastic bags though? Because the moment the coronavirus situation happened, the pandemic as we remember, they suddenly said, oh God, whatever you do, use Reuse, reuse, use one single use, single use plastic bags because in case of contamination of, you know, yes. um, of, of spreading disease. And I'm thinking, OK, that's interesting. So actually, single use plastic is actually a really good thing yes. from a health point of view. Yes, anyway, yeah. move on, Philip. So, so guess what the upshot of banning single use plastic bags were? An enormous number of plastic bags, probably somewhere. No, uh, more Plastic bag pollution than ever. And okay, explain it. Explain it to the, so to, to, the to the slow people at the back of the class here. So the one, you know, the ones that you take every yeah. time, you know, the yeah, yeah. heavy plastic bag. There's so much plastic in that. Of one of them being thrown out, would be the equivalent of like of ten or twenty plastic bags. And of course, nobody ever throws out their plastic bags. They keep them. They recycle them. Yes. They, they use them for this and that and the other. So there's actually more. Uh, more plastic ending up in landfill because they banned plastic bags. This is the the unintended consequences, as they call it. You know, yeah, they un they don't think things through. These people do not think things through. No, Go on, Phil. What's the second one then? Um, well, electric vehicle ca cars in right. California plummeting in sales. I've, I've somehow at some level I'm I'm conscious of that. Why is that happening? Because. People, the word is getting out, basically because of the bad weather in places like, uh, there's been a lot of snow in California, actually. Right, right. And when there's snow, your car is, you can't get out to the charger. Oh, yeah. Your car freezes and uh, electric vehicles, uh, the battery will die in, in, in cold weather. It, it, it won't, even if it's charged up, It'll die because there's so much computers in it, so many computers in it and all that. Even it's sitting there still using things. Right. So if your car sits there for four days, it's there and it can't you can't go and charge it. So um and then during the um because of the storms, the electric lines went down, so you couldn't charge your vehicle. Plus I think actually people didn't realise that Elon Musk was a right wing nut job. Oh right. And they're oh. kind of boycotting Tesla as well. Um and the the much vaunted electric charging network has not arrived correct so um so electric and given the fact that we had that little earthquake the, the other day um it suddenly reminds one that you should always have a gas car and you should have it full of gas so that in the event that there's an earthquake you can get in said car and drive a very very long way with a full tank I, of petrol I always that's why i always have a, a car full of petrol. somebody in this group not me does has a tendency to run the car until there's literally nothing in it. fumes. It's running on fumes, and that said person says, "I'll fill it up tomorrow." Whereas another think person, think of the amount of money I've saved. Do not think about another up. person in the group. Another person in the group, as in me, thinks that the petrol the tank should always be full. I also don't find it that offensive to go and get the the, the car filled up with gas, but Phelan seems to have some little issue with that. I'm not sure what that's about. Moving on. Okay, move on. moving on. So actually, now we're going over to an interview that we did earlier. Yes. Um, and we have often said, we have very often said that there have to be, there has to be other Gosnells operating in the United States. Um, 
because because Gosnell was able to operate in Pennsylvania, which is not a backwater, which is very progressive, which has loads of laws, loads of agencies, loads of mm. cops, loads of everything. Close to New York. And yet he was able to get away with this yeah. for decades yeah. in plain sight, in completely plain sight, by the way, yeah. with complaints going in and nothing happening. So unfortunately, there is a case going on in Washington, D.C. that has has actually proved us correct. So we're going to go over now to an interview with, with as we're saying, with Teresa Bukovnik. She is a, a pro-life activist, a pro-life... Atheist, atheist activist uh, about what they discovered when they went protesting in D.C. Um, our friends at the Susan B. Anthony list are producing a podcast about the case. Um, and let's let's have a quick listen to the podcast. Um, to a little bit of that podcast. Oh, sorry, just to a little bit of the podcast to give you a little taster. And then we'll go straight into the interview with with Teresa and she'll give you the full background. This week, 35 pro-life groups joined forces to write a letter to Congress addressed to the Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson. Why did they write him? Because despite two years of delays, the Department of Justice and DC Chief of Police have not provided information on any investigation into the DC-5. And just last week, hopes for any autopsies or investigation were dashed when reports came through that President Biden's administration instructed the DC medical examiner that they had no use for the bodies of the DC-5. So we're here now with Teresa Bukovnik. She's the founder of Progressive Anti-Abortion Uprising. Teresa has been arrested a number of times for her acts of civil disobedience and uh, non-violent protest of abortion clinics. Um, she's involved in things like Rose Rescues, where she and other activists enter abortion clinics to offer roses and resources to women in the waiting rooms. Um, Teresa was one of the two women who discovered the bodies that we're going to be talking about and is going to take us through everything that happened the day she found the DC-5, and the latest developments in the story. So welcome to the show, Teresa. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for coming. Yeah. So can you tell us uh, how you found the bodies? Yeah, it's quite the story. How did it start? Tell us about that day. Um, March 25th, 2022, Lauren Handy and I, who she and I have been doing anti-abortion activism together since 2017, and um, I had recently moved to Washington, D.C. to found Progressive Anti-Abortion Uprising. And she and I had been engaging in several uh, Rose Rescues, like you mentioned, uh, across the country. And on this day, we usually do um, sidewalk outreach at Planned Parenthood on Fridays. And that year, March 25th, was on a Friday. Um, but Planned Parenthood was closed that day for some unknown reason. And so uh, we decided to change directions and uh, go to the Washington Surgery Center, which is an all-term abortion center in Washington, D.C. Uh, we're familiar with this particular location because we had done a Rose Rescue here prior. We um, walked into the, the waiting room. We met a mom there um, who was pregnant and she was behind on rent, $4,000, facing eviction. And we connected her with an organization called Let Them Live, who helped pay her 
back rent and she walked out of the abortion center that day with her baby. Um, so we thought, let's go and try to do that again. So we went to the Washington Surgery Center. We had roses in hand. Um, but as soon as we arrived, we saw a truck parked outside labeled Curtis Bay Medical Waste Services. Now, we've been doing anti-abortion work for a long time, so we know that that probably means that they're taking out some of the dead babies. And when we walked around to the back of the truck, I mean, Lauren and I didn't even discuss it. We just knew we gave each other eye contact. We knew it was happening. We walked around to the back of the truck and the driver was there actually loading the boxes onto the truck. Um, there were two sitting on a dolly on the sidewalk and there he was loading. He had just loaded one onto the truck. And I just instinctively said, do you know what's in these boxes? And he said, no. And I said, it's dead babies. Now, I'm speculating, of course. I didn't know for sure what was in the box at that time, but um, he looked shocked. And um, I said, would you get in trouble if we took one of these boxes? And um, we confirmed that they were from the Washington Surgery Center. We looked at the, the labels on the box at Washington Surgery Center, and he checked the manifest, and it was, in fact, from there. Um, and when I asked him, you know, would you get in trouble if we took one? He said, what would you do with it if I gave it to you? And Lauren, my colleague who's Catholic, I'm an atheist. Um, she said, we'll give them a proper funeral and a burial. And so he said, okay. And we immediately panicked, you know, we, we have not planned for this. Um, yes. and Care careful we, we what you wish for. What's that? Careful what you wish for. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so we immediately took the box back to her apartment. She had just moved in um, to a, a basement apartment on Capitol Hill. So it was totally clean. The refrigerator had never been used. Um, we didn't know what we were about to get. We called literally everyone we could think of, anyone who had ever handled fetal remains, anyone who had any experience with handling medical waste, um, our attorneys, you know, like we, we didn't know what to do. Um, and so we went to, after taking the, the box to her house, we went to the drugstore, we got gloves, uh, masks, um, and we got containers because we didn't know. We thought, you know, in our minds, we were just going to be pulling out, you know, bloody gauze and, and maybe we were going to see, um, you know, a pulverized arm or a leg, something that just the thought of that was terrifying to us. I mean, yes, yeah, yes. To, to see an abortion victim up close like that, we knew it was going to um, have a major effect on the rest of our lives. Um, so we, we were prepared in that case that it was just kind of a mess inside and that we were going to have to um, to pull out piece by piece what was in there. Uh, we set up a camera inside her apartment. When we got back, we had a Catholic deacon there. Um, we had a reporter and a photographer. And we and Lauren, um, once the camera was rolling, she cut open the box. Inside the box was a red plastic biohazard bag. Um, she cut open the bag and inside was a mountain of um, these small turquoise plastic containers that Lauren immediately recognized um, as something she called whirl packs. And she said, it's all babies. It's just babies. The entire box looked like it was full of these containers. And so, you know, our hearts are racing. We're carefully trying to unpack each of these whirl packs onto the table, stacking them up. And each of the world packs had a date on it and initials, um, likely of the parent and the date of the procedure. And so as we're unpacking these, um, we remove 
enough where there's another bag visible near the bottom. And when Lauren pulled out the bag, it was like a white plastic garbage bag, but you could kind of see through it and you could see that there were five much larger containers in that bag. And one of those containers was significantly larger than the other four. And our hearts just dropped and we knew, you know, it's like bigger containers means bigger babies. So the first container that we attempted to open was the biggest one. And Lauren very courageously, um, you know, with double gloves, double masks, and I'm filming with my, um, with my iPhone while the other camera is rolling. And, um, she puts her hands into the container and she says, this baby is whole. This baby is whole. And she pulls out the most beautiful, whole baby yeah. boy that I've ever seen. I mean, we regularly carry around a 22 week fetal model with us when we're doing activism. This baby was like twice that size. And we knew right away what we were looking at, that we were looking at a possible vit victim of infanticide. And, you know, if you Can watch just... that video, which has been shared, it, it's, um, you know, it's just this horrific moment. I'm just sobbing and cursing the people, cursing Santangelo, the doctor that did this to them. And, um, you know, our just our world just kind of fell apart in that moment. It was nothing like what we were expecting. And it's something that I think about every single day since then. How old do you estimate the, the baby is? The babies, yeah, the five the babies five. were. Experts have put uh, Christopher X, who was the first baby that we un unpacked um, at over 30 weeks. So we're looking at a baby who certainly was old enough to survive on their own. He was completely whole and intact. And we know that this, that Santangelo, the abortionist, doesn't use a fetocidal injection uh, before wow. uh, doing the procedure. Uh, he's talked about it uh, on undercover videos before. And, um, and he's happy. He's talked about the fact that he doesn't use it? Yes. He is explicitly said and you know in the descriptions that the that he gives for the method of death it's more like i cut the umbilical umbilical cord but no. um, this baby didn't have any wounds on them and so the chant we know you know i i've been very involved in fetal organ harvesting issues at the university of california san francisco and i'm familiar with um studies by um the society of family planning a, a pro-choice institution which mm. shows that a baby a, an a Induced abortion after 20 weeks without the use of digoxin, a fetocidal injection, the chances of a born alive case are 50%. This baby we know is well past 20 weeks. And so Lauren and I immediately knew um, that the chance that this baby wasn't born alive and left to die are extremely low. As Gosnell would say, introduces fetal demise by cutting the umbilical cord. Is that it? Right. That's what he said on camera. Um, wow. But I think that we know that that isn't sufficient to causing fetal demise and that oh, someone as sloppy as Santangelo is likely not even doing that. It's much easier to just induce labor and then let the baby drown in their in the, the formaldehyde solution, which appears um, to be what happened to Christopher X. You said talked about from formaldehyde. Where does that come from? What's that used for? Well, I presume that it's to preserve the remains, uh, but there was they were all in some kind of formaldehyde solution, even uh -huh. even the much smaller babies. The smell right. was overwhelming and we put like Vicks inside our masks so that we wouldn't have mm -hmm. to smell the formaldehyde. Um, 
I mean, we were all sick. We we, we were just absolutely sick I'm, when this is happening. I mean, it's very hard to like not gag or, you know, just the whole experience was just, it was completely rocking our world, like psychologically. And um, just to be clear then, so what's the legal time cut off for abortion in D.C.? There is no legal limit no, in Washington, exactly. D.C. Um, yeah. Federal law, there there is no federal limit in the United States. So in D.C., wow. there's also no limit. Um, yeah. However, leaving a baby born alive to die is a federal crime. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so is partial birth abortion. And the second victim that we, um, the second bucket that we opened uh, contained the remains of a baby girl we named Harriet. Uh, a similar gestational age. Um, but when we opened the bucket, she had one eye looking right at us. And it was just, it was just unbelievable. And when we pulled her out, she had this beautiful long foot that just, you know, writh- writhing in pain, of course, but just being able to see how she would have been so tall and so beautiful and just seeing her entire life just ripped away from her and, and seeing up close just this absolute hatred for mankind from whoever did this. It, mm-hmm. it just, it was just horrible. Um, but when we, we turned her over, we saw that she had a, an incision in the back of her neck and her brain had been suctioned out and her skull had been crushed. And this is the hallmark of an illegal partial birth abortion, a federal crime. So within the first two buckets that mm-hmm. we opened, we, we were looking at something extremely serious, something that we, we really could not have anticipated. Uh, the next baby that we, that we found was uh, a baby we named Phoenix. Phoenix was completely encased in their amniotic sac. Again, mm-hmm. similar gestational age, around 30 weeks, I would say, but we don't know the gender um, because they were completely encased in their amniotic sac. Again, like how could this baby have been killed uh, before the procedure that it, Phoenix most certainly uh, drowned in their own amniotic fluid and died? And then the other two babies, um, Angel, a boy and um, Holly, a, a girl, were severely dismembered. Holly was ripped in half, her spinal cord totally um, exposed. Um, Angel, his head had been, he'd been decapitated and his head had been smashed, um, you know, limbs everywhere. It was just a literal horror show, uh, unlike anything that I think I've certainly ever seen and unlike anything that most Americans have ever seen in their lives. Well, flash forward to today, if you like. I mean, clearly this was 19, this was 2022. And, you know, given your description, you know, you're, you really uncovered what, what looks like a crime scene. And obviously you got the authorities involved. Um, what happened? Because what probably, you know, what should have happened, I think we're all clear what should have happened. There should be an investigation. They should find out if, if what you found was true. There should be conviction. People should be, you know, uh, the, the full ho- force of the law should mm-hmm. come after whoever was involved if something illegal had happened. What did happen? So there was a lot of a discussion between Lauren and I about what to do next. Uh, we... Lauren's Catholic, and and she felt a strong desire to ensure that these babies had a proper burial mm-hmm. very soon. Um, there was a strong distrust from both of us uh, of the DC police, and and a lot of skepticism about whether we would ev- 
would anyone care? Mm-hmm. And um, you know, certainly we didn't think the police would care. Um, but after you know many grueling nights of of trying to figure out what to do, and we contacted like maybe a hundred people looking for a private pathologist to come and take a look at these babies and do some examination of them uh, while we had them in our possession. Uh, but no one had the expertise or was willing to do it. And so we knew that we had to make a decision quick. We felt like we didn't know how long the remains mm-hmm. would be preserved in the fr- refrigerator. Yeah. Um, and, and we just, we, we were just out of our league. We didn't know what we were doing. So yeah. at some point we contacted some attorneys who issued a letter to the DCPD from us saying that we had um, five uh, late term aborted babies um, who appeared to be possible victims of federal crimes, asking them to come retrieve them uh, while we allowed the other 110 to be buried by a priest um, in an undisclosed location. Now we did have a, for those who are Catholic, um, we did have a funeral mass for the babies while they were in the refrigerator for mm-hmm. unbaptized children performed by a priest. Um, and then it was after that time that um, the 110 were taken for burial and we had contacted the police. Mm-hmm. So now the police told us, okay, well, we'll just leave the door unlocked. We'll come in and get the babies uh, tonight. And I, I think this was on the 30th or the 29th. Um, and, um, We'll come in and get them and then just come back a couple hours later and lock up after us. So we left the door unlocked, but we went back to my apartment because we hadn't been staying at Lauren's apartment, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were tired. We were exhausted. We've been going through this for days now. Um, and so we just fell asleep. And then in the morning we woke up and uh, we heard that some people that were involved in a rescue two years prior at Sant'Angelo's clinic uh, were being arrested by the FBI. So we, her, we hurried over to her, her apartment, and when we got out of the car, the FBI was already there outside of her apartment, and they said, Lauren Handy, you're under arrest. And she was taken into custody right there on the sidewalk. I took a video. They gave me her things, and um, and she was in police custody. They never went in her apartment. They simply arrested her there on the sidewalk. So as soon as she was in custody, I went into the apartment to make sure that the babies had been retrieved by the police, but they were still there. And so all of the timing of this is very strange, of course. And so I, I'm i also panicking at this point. I call the lawyers, what's going on? The babies are still here. And they said, oh, actually, you're going to have to give permission to the police to enter um, and you need to be there. And, and so we arranged the time later that day. It was in the afternoon, hours after Lauren had been arrested by the FBI. Uh, I went to the apartment. I have pictures, timestamps that I took of the police entering, um, looking at the babies and taking them into custody. They shut down the entire block and made a huge scene of it with the homicide unit there, uh, forensics. And um, when I left the apartment, there was a news reporter there uh, with a camera literally in my face. Like, can you tell us about what happened here? And I, I didn't know what to do yet. So I was like, not yet, but, you know, I will have comments soon. Um and then the story, of course, which you will read in many um, reputable um, publications, is that the D.C. police discovered these remains, which is just, it, it's such a, uh, yeah, like I literally had to tell, not just 
show them Lauren's ID and give them permission to enter. I had to give them permission on camera. And it was this whole thing. We basically had to beg them to come and take these babies. And, and the way that it's just been kind of illustrated, like either, you know, some some have reported that the feds raided Lauren's home and found the babies and some have reported the DC police found them. But either way, we begged them to take them into custody. Mm -hmm. Just just a miracle, really? Just, yes, yes. Just, just they were just walking along and there they were. They're just they're just that good, the the DC police. Typical media misinformation. So let's let's talk about why Lauren was arrested. Yes, because yes. that's a separate That's separate to yeah, to this to this um discovery of the Although bodies. Although the timing is suspicious, but Yes. Let's understand why what she was arrested for. So Lauren, uh, along with the Progressive Anti-Abortion Uprisings uh, Board of Directors member, Herb Garrity, um, back in 2020, uh, did a nonviolent direct action at Santangelo's clinic, knowing um, that he's doing abortions through all nine months, that he, he mm. has a reputation of being sloppy. There's reason to believe because of undercover footage from 2012 that he does leave babies to die. Um, or would in those cases where a baby was born alive. Um, and so they went to the clinic and they they did a direct action. And um, some of the members appeared to be uh, potentially blocking um, some of the access points to the abortion center, uh, which is a tactic that was used widely in the 80s and 90s and actually um, quite successfully. Operation Rescue yep. was the, the largest... Uh, peaceful civil disobedience movement in the history of our country. And quite frankly, I don't believe that we would have a pro-life political party or a movement in this country mm -hmm. had Operation Rescue not really put their bodies in between the oppressors yeah. and the oppressed and done the yeah. hard work of, of harnessing social tension to create social change, ultimately mm -hmm. overturning Roe versus Wade. And so it's really critical. Pro progressive anti-abortion uprising has um, been committed to this, to direct action and, and revitalizing it in young people. Uh, amongst young people and so lauren and and herb were, were doing their their activist duty of defending yeah. these children from an actual killer um now when they they did that action they were arrested and then released um and so they didn't think that um anything more than that was going to happen it was quite a surprise when mm -hmm. we just happened to have have these children in our custody and um and then the feds came after everybody um under the FACE Act. So, yeah, so they're now charged under a federal FACE Act, which is blocking commerce, legal commerce from happening. They have been convicted, uh, yeah, and, they're face and they've been immediately put in prison pending sentence. Is that is that correct? Yes. Um, we were not expecting them to be uh, taken into custody immediately uh, upon their conviction. Yeah. Um, but uh, they can, can I just say that's can I just say that, you know, we've covered a lot of court cases and a lot of this. That's practically unheard of. Everyone gets three months, six months. Sometimes I'm shocked. They, get, they get nine months. You know, yeah. Uh, yeah. Elizabeth Holmes, I think, almost got a year to get her children, child care sorted and her or yeah, her life, her in, life order. in order yeah. um, before the sentencing. You Very know, she, chilling. She was convicted in the fall. I think she was sentenced in May. And I mean, this FACE Act, which is, yeah, which is interfering with people, you know, doing their doing commerce, basically. I mean, I, I imagine you're probably a bit of an expert on it now. Is it used a lot in the United States for, for in other contexts other than this one? So the FACE Act was actually uh, a response to Operation Rescue. It was enacted in 1994 to stop Operation Rescue. And um, and since then, it's been used hundreds of times against pro-lifers. There is kind of a, 
it, it did have bipartisan support at the time because it is designed, supposed to be designed to also protect pregnancy centers and churches from um, from these types of this type of activism. Uh, but it has been used and weaponized against pro-lifers literally hundreds of times. And I think it's only been um, it, it's only been utilized against uh, pro-abortion activists twice. Uh, and so how how is I mean uh, how are these how are the you know your colleagues coping I mean these are they're, you know, they're, they're looking at eleven years maximum now they probably won't get that but they could get a lot of it how, yeah, how are they coping that's certainly what they're facing and it's eerie because you know we have a very pro-abortion president right now very pro-abortion DOJ pro-abortion judge um, that really want to see them pay. Uh, for this. And it's, they're, of course, scared. And they, they've been in jail since August. Uh, they've been in jail more than six months. I don't know how many of your listeners have done six months in jail, but that is a, a that is a torturous amount of time. Uh, yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, and to be in jail that long without even knowing how long you are going to be in jail is another yes. level of torture. Um, and it's, it's just completely, uh, it, it's, it's, the way that this has gone is obviously um, it's the weaponization of uh, the Department of Justice against yes. totally peaceful, totally nonviolent um, activists because of the content of their speech. I'm so glad, by the way, that we have you on today, Teresa. And I know I wanted to have you on months ago and I don't know what happened to us, but because I think this is an incredibly important story. And I think one of the things I mean, uh, one of the positives about the DC5, I think, is highlighting what is also legal in America. Obviously, at the moment, they haven't, you know, you haven't been able to establish because they haven't done autopsies on these children or certainly they haven't released autopsies on these children. Mm-hmm. Um, but but even the fact that it's legal to abort at that stage, I think, is a point that I'm I, it's something that means a lot to me that I, th- I, I, I I really believe most Americans don't believe that's true. Yes. They don't know it's true. I mean, I when you were, Phelan was asking you there about the D.C. law, I happen to know that the D.C. law is up to nine months. Colorado, Arkansas, what, like Arkansas, right? Uh, Kansas, weird places. California, New York, New Jersey. And those, and those number of places that allow abortion up to nine months is growing, not decreasing. Can you correct me, by the way, if I'm wrong, Teresa? I, I don't think that's correct about Arkansas, but I do agree. Yeah, you're right. With you Arkansas that, is wrong. Okay. You know, Kansas, since though, yeah. Roe, many states obviously been passing yeah. um, ballot initiatives, which is expanding abortion into the third trimester for elective reasons. And yes. people think, well, mm-hmm. no, that's not. You know, there's there's hard edges to both sides of this debate. You know, the hard edge of our debate is you know making sure that. Uh, parents who whose life is threatened um, by a complicated pregnancy and and things like that are protected under these laws. That's that's something that we have to pay attention to and something that mm-hmm. is a real concern and re- understandably so for the other side. But the hard edge of their position is literal infanticide and third trimester yes. elective abortion, which yes, they exactly. don't, like you said, they don't think that that's happening. And that's how these valid initiatives are getting passed is, mm-hmm. is yeah. by uh, just... No. This ignorance. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, we have to wrap it up here, I suppose. But I mean, that is um, that is if people knew what the abortion law was in America, there'd be a lot less people in favor of abortion. Yeah. Um, so well, when when will the, when will your colleagues be sentenced? When will that happen? Uh, May seventeenth, I believe. How can people help? 
Well, drawing attention to the DC-5 is the most important thing. It is about these victims. My friends are, they're making a sacrifice so that we can end yes. abortion in this country. And we will not, this is the pathway to a national ban, at least of viability. Mm -hmm. We have to show the American people what happened yes. to these babies in particular. And so yes. please visit the website j45.com. Um, it's on the Progressive Anti-Abortion Uprising website. Um, please continue to call your members of Congress, demand a hearing for these babies. We have a pro-life House of Representatives right now. There is no excuse that we can gloss over this or let the, these babies' stories um, fall through the cracks. This is our opportunity to really show people the hard edge of the pro-abortion side. And, um, you know, you guys have done so much work in that respect with the Gosnell film and mm -hmm. We just have to continue on that path. And of course, with helping my friends, you know, if you want to communicate with them, there's an app called Securus Mobile. Um, you just download that app and you can message them, send them, you know, words of encouragement. And of course, you know, if you're able to give to progressive anti-abortion uprising, to put money on their commissaries, um, to make sure that they're taken care of, um, that's super helpful. But more than anything, it, this is about justice for the victims of abortion. And we're asking everyone to, yes, Lauren and, and Herb are victims of a, of a weaponized justice system, mm -hmm. but it's the babies who are the true victims here. Yeah. And just to tell people that they, and we will put up the, we will put up the coordinates for the website actually in our show notes, but people, and I would urge people, and I think it is very important to look at the photographs. They're very, they're very, very powerful. And as you said, the little one with the eye looking yeah. out, it we've reminds it. me, we've, we've seen, seen we've obviously have the set of photographs we have ourselves from the discovery from the Gosnell Clinic. And one of the babies has a finger, pointing you know, pointing um, like an admonition, like a challenge, almost like a challenge, like, you know, what are you, you know, pay attention. What are you doing? Yeah. Uh, so I think that there's something extremely powerful in those photographs. Give us those coordinates again. J uh, the letter J, the word F-O-R, and the number 5.com. J for 5. J for 5. Okay. okay, we'll do that. Teresa? Thank you so much, Teresa. We really appreciate it. And we'll keep back, we'll get back to you as well in yes. May about this because we want to know what if happens. not before. Thank you okay. so much, both of you. Thanks, Teresa. Bye-bye. Well, I'm really glad we got to talk to Teresa. Yes. Um, she, what what brave people, by the way. I mean, this is this is what bravery looks like, yes. by the way. I mean, you know, you, we have Navalny last week and now we have these people who are who are basically locked up mm -hmm. because they're trying to stop this, the horror of of these abortions. So we'll keep in touch with that story because yes. I think it's incredibly interesting. And as I said, you know, if you go to the show notes, you'll get the the link to their website. It's it's tough going now to look at those photographs, yes. but I think that the a bit like um, I was talking to Teresa after the interview just briefly there and we both we both really love David Delayden and she, and you know she she traces her um, you know her becoming her, her radicalization to, to meeting David by the way and I was reminding her of a story of when I remember asking David one time uh, you know why like how did you manage to stand there in in Houston when they were showing the bodies and breaking up the bodies of babies in front of him. And he said he wanted to be a witness. He wanted to be to bear witness to the children who had no one else to stand up for them. And she and I both, you know, acknowledge that that's that that's so that's so what David does. And that, in a way, is also maybe your duty to turn up for those children, to look at the website, to look at those photographs mm. and to share those photographs with yeah. other people, because yeah. this is what is uh, is going on in America. This is what's going on in every town in the country, basically. Mm -hmm. And this is what pro-abortion activists are trying to push 
into every corner of the country. Yeah. So it's, it is something we need to be very involved in. Yeah. So thanks. All, that's all for this week. Um, thank you so much for supporting us. If you want to support the making of this show and the making of Climate Change on Trial and all the projects we do. And we've got some Including great, a very big project that's coming up in May. In, in New York. In, in April, actually. Yeah. Yes. And uh, you can make a donation to the Unreported Story Society. So that's go to unreportedstorysociety.com. Please we would very it. much appreciate it. We, got, we did get some very good donations through the Mark Stein trial. Uh, not enough, by the way, to cover our costs. No, no. Uh, because it's a, it was a it was an expensive it was, it was a brilliantly expensive. expensive project. I I have to say we enjoyed it and it's, it stands as a record, uh, as a historical record to that. And I think it'll stand for the ages. So we're creating history here. We're telling the truth, but bearing witness. So please help us do that at unreportedstorysociety.com. Thank, Thank you. you.